to look for what? Yes. <laughs> and as an example, last night when the music was playing, if you wanted to experience all the subtleties of the music, right, hearing every note, what was actually required? Was it necessary for the mind to go out to the music? Or was it possible to settle back and be receptive? That is, let the sound, let the music mind with a silent, careful, receptive, allowing mind, you would hear every note, every nuance of the sound. And so those two things of investigation and receptivity, although they sound as if they're different, actually come together when the mind is totally settled back, non-doing, non-interfering. But it's settled back with a careful attention. It's receptive with care. It's as if you're listening to music very carefully. If you let the mind-body experience be the music that you're listening to. So you simply settle back and with that same, that same quality of receiving experience rather than attacking experience. Just receiving is the breath and sensations and thoughts and images and mind states. And what's so, perhaps the most amazing discovery about the whole practice is that experience is doing itself. It doesn't need our help. But you may have noticed how for most of the time in a sitting or in a walking, we try to help experience along. The greatest trick in practice is letting go of that interfering and simply settling back, allowing it all to arise and pass and flow on its own. Does that... it's true equally of all of our experience and it's somewhat like learning how to ride a bicycle you know as you learn to ride you fall off a bit on either side until finally you hit the balance the falling off really doesn't contribute to the balance. And yet somehow that seems to be the process that's necessary. And so in the same way as you said, it's true that there's a lot of falling off, right? Until that balance of non-interfering, until, you, until the mind just settles into that rhythmic awareness of what's happening. 
But perhaps if you keep it in mind, the, the quality of listening to experience rather than going after it, it might give you a sense of that balance. The commenting mind is not something apart from all other experience. And so if you're sitting and just letting experience come and go, and the commenting mind comes, boy, this is great, and you're able to allow that to come and go also, then there's no problem. That just becomes another part of the passing show. But what happens is, boy, this is great, And instead of being okay with that, the fact that that thought came, there's generally a judgment of it. Oh, here I go, mucking things up again, (laughs) you know, and the mind's off and running in in that chain of judgmental thought. There's nothing outside of the practice, and that's, that's a hard one to learn. Because we're going along and going along and just feeling and observing and being with experience. And then a thought comes along which we put outside of the field of awareness, like it's going along fine or it's going terribly. It's like that's the corner we back into then from which we observe the process and that's where we get stuck. It's something like some image that comes to my mind is that of riding a bucking bronco. And it's like the mind experiences just following one after the other very quickly. Ride it. And ride it Well, ride it and also pay attention to those places where the bucking throws you off. But if you can stay right on that front edge of just the latest moment's experience, as has been said quite often, there are only six objects to watch. (laughs) It's not much. And actually, when we sit, there are only really four predominant ones. There's, there's usually not predominant smell and predominant taste you know, when we're sitting in the hall. Four things. Sight, sound, sensation, and thought. Just to keep track of those. And they're all coming and going by themselves. There's nothing to do about any of them. Just to allow. I've been getting some of the weirdest thoughts imaginable lately. I mean, just like 
Mabel likes fried chicken. <laughs> Where did that come from? <laughs> and I was wondering, to what extent am I telepathically receiving thought forms? <laughs> <laughs> and to what extent are these idiocies really mine? And if there's no me, how can there be a thinker? Anyway. They're really coming from the guy behind you. <laughs> And actually, that would be a very useful perspective. (laughs) Because then you could stop worrying about them. (laughs) Do you invite your thoughts to come? Do you sit and say, okay now, thought, come on. Maybe some of you do sometimes. (laughs) But generally, they just appear. Who knows where they come from? When you see that, as, as you must have been seeing to some extent that, thoughts simply appear and some of them are totally bizarre. You know, and you wonder where are they coming from? The thought is thinking itself. It doesn't belong to anybody. The thought does not belong to you. Just think what a relief that is. (laughs) The thought does not belong to you, whatever it is. Right? The most noble thoughts of enlightenment and the most perverse fantasies possible do not belong to you. They're just coming and going. Do you see how simple that makes it? Some of them seem to. And that's in the sense that you asked that question, you were using, as I heard it, the word conditioning in a pretty narrowly defined sense. That is what we could trace back, you know, through our childhood and and growing up and all the impressions. And certainly a lot of thoughts come from past impression. But you might also think of conditioning as the interplay of all forces in the universe. The fact that everything in some way is interconnected and interdependent. So maybe some of our thoughts come from Mars. It's, It's a pretty broad view. And I don't know that you've you've gotten the sense sometimes when the mind gets somewhat quiet, you can get a sense that the mind just even a sense of the limitlessness 
or the boundlessness of mind. It's not limited by this physical frame. Now, the mind is vast. It's without boundary. It's without limit. And so the forces which condition it are also limitless and boundless. You know, that a few years ago, the Dalai Lama was here. He was on a visit to the States and he came to the center. And it was during, it was during the three-month course, wasn't it? And he gave a talk to everyone. And he is totally wonderful. He just embodies real deep love and compassion and wisdom. And somebody asked him a question about what to do with feelings of unworthiness. And his response, this is somewhat of a paraphrase of it, had to do with the the total inappropriateness of unworthiness when we understand this infinite nature of mind. In all of our minds, it's the nature of mind, it's not just some people's minds. The nature of mind is that it contains everything. Just reflect on that for a moment. The nature of mind is that it contains everything. The possibility of Buddhahood, of enlightenment, the highest truth, of compassion, of love, of all the defilements. It's like the mind in all of us contains it all. So when we understand that, what does unworthiness mean? It's like we all possess, we all are. Now this this vastness of mind. And really what we're doing in the practice is beginning to understand it, beginning to understand the laws governing it. Now, one of the meanings of the word dharma is law. So, dharma practice is understanding the laws of the mind. Because when we're in harmony with the law, then there's the sense of peace. When we're not in harmony, so this conflict and struggle. So when you take this perspective, it, it becomes. When you take this perspective of mind, the practice becomes so inspiring and so interesting. Really, what we're all doing is just exploring this this amazing, amazing phenomenon.
Could you speak on the relationship between intention and desire? Are they the same thing? And how subtle does that get? Like, is there intention in every thought? There are some mental factors or qualities which are called common factors. That is, they arise in every moment of consciousness. They're common to every moment. And there are seven of those common factors. Intention is one of them. But it's not always predominant. It's a factor that's always there, but it's not always the predominant factor. So in our practice, basically we become mindful of intention when it's predominant. So for example, as you're walking, actually there's an intention in every moment of the movement. But it would get quite mind-boggling you know, to, to be aware of each of those intentions. And so we take the intention at the beginning of the step, right? or maybe the beginning of the movement, where, where it's a very predominant uh, function. And so there's also an intention preceding desire, and there's also an intention conditioned by desire. problem the problem of understanding in this in this situation is more a semantic one and the problem is that in english we use the word desire to cover a whole range of mind states one meaning of desire is grasping and clinging another meaning of desire is motivation there can be a motivation to do things free of grasping. In other words, a motivation based on understanding, based on wisdom, based on love. There's that motive to do. We call that desire, the desire for enlightenment, the desire to do something. But it's not the same mind state as the desire of grasping, of clinging. And so you have to look to see if there's a, de- if there's a desire to restrain desire, you have to see what each of those two desires actually refer to. And my sense is that you'll find they're two very different states. The desire to restrain desire, that is, not, not to be pulled out by that wanting mind, the desire not to be pulled out by the wanting mind could and must skillfully come from a place simply of understanding, not from a place of grasping or holding. And you'll see that they're two quite different states. Could you speak a bit about that? 
a good idea. <laughs> That's an edge in practice for almost all of us. You know, we we're attached to sleep, and we're afraid of tiredness. Many of us. And so that's a real playing edge. It's very helpful to play the edge. There's no one model that's going to be appropriate for everyone because it depends depends on ourselves just as individuals and our systems. It depends on the level of practice. At whatever level of sleep you feel comfortable, push it a little bit. You know, just kind of extend that edge. There is a big difference in the momentum of the practice when you're sitting six or seven or eight hours a day or you're sitting 10, 11, 12, or 13 hours a day. There's a big difference. There's a, there's a qualitative jump that happens in order to be sitting and doing the equivalent or appropriate amount of walking, the only, the only way to create that time is to begin sleeping less. But it's not something to get uptight about. And you can't force it, because then you just make the whole system tight and tense and frustrated, and it's not the way to do it. It's more just a gentle edging towards less sleep and playing and experimenting. One way of doing that is don't go to sleep until you're really tired. Really tired. Zonked. Then go to sleep. But what happens is, and I've seen it myself very much in lots and lots of yogis, get to a certain point at, at night and you're feeling kind of tired but not really tired and then the thought comes well if I don't go to sleep now I'll be tired tomorrow right? it's the just in case syndrome <laughs> I better go to sleep just in case don't buy into that one you know, really respond to the energy that's happening and don't worry about what's going to come the next day Also, just one other thing about sleep, for those of you who want to play that edge a little bit and really experiment, some people are better at night and can really stay up late. Other people find that actually they're more awake or alert when they first get up. So you can also play the edge by getting up earlier as well as by staying up later. It's definitely worth investigating, but again, not to get uptight behind it or to create an ideal or model of how you're supposed to be, because we're all different. If you're mindful in the sitting, if the mindfulness is there, the awareness is there, For most of you, and in interviews, we might adjust it according to the individual case, but generally speaking, to sit as long as you can sit, if the mindfulness is reasonable. 
to, to be sitting and spacing out the whole time, might as well get up and walk. But if you can sit and you're pretty attentive and it's going on, sit an hour, an hour and a half, two hours, three hours, five hours, ten hours. <laughs> After each sitting, do a good walking period, 45 minutes or an hour. It was sometimes even longer, an hour and a half. Then come back and sit, sit as long as you can, do a walking. But don't think the walking is a is an essential part of the whole balance that's created. I'd recommend closer attention in the walking. Seems like we, like you just said, my sitting's been getting better. You know, seems like we all have notions about when our sittings are better or worse. Do we really know? Don't know. (laughs) No, because. As, as I mentioned in one of the earlier talks, there, there are cycles and stages of practice, and there are times when the sitting feels absolutely, totally wonderful. Clear and rapturous and light, and strong concentration and strong mindfulness, and it just feels like this is it. And a more advanced stage is actually when everything starts dissolving and it gets so fearful and so unpleasant that you can hardly sit for 10 minutes. And so you really don't know. For that reason, it's helpful to just let go of any evaluation and simply be with what's happening and let the process unfold according to its own law. Would you say something about continuing to sit when everything hurts? (laughs) Is that um, important to do, or is it a merit? (laughs) At different times, different responses are appropriate. So, for example, you're sitting and you're just dealing with a lot of pain or unpleasantness everything hurts, everything is really unpleasant. If you can sit and be balanced with it, where the mind is balanced and soft and allowing and simply experiencing it, that's fine. There's no problem and and you should continue. When it gets to the point of struggle, where, where it's just hurting so much and the mind is really struggling, at that point, you have to really feel or intuit what you actually want to do. And there are two choices. One is to move or change position. Because there's not so much point in simply struggling. The point of the practice is to do that which is most conducive to mindfulness. So often, if you're just sitting there in this total struggle, it would be more helpful to move and change position or walk and continue. 
There are times, however, when you will want to sit just to see what happens, to really investigate, okay, what is going on here? I'm going to sit, let me die. But that has to come not from what you think you should be doing, but because at that time, that's what you want to be doing. And the wanting to be doing it will give you the energy and the interest to actually stay there with it. And so both of those options are open, and at different times, you'll feel inclined to choose one or the other. Okay, I think I can do some walking now. I'll just remind you of one of the earlier magical mantras because you've probably forgotten from the last time it was mentioned. It's a very helpful mantra. In fact, it's the most helpful mantra and it has great power. And so please repeat it to yourself at least a hundred thousand times a day. (laughs) Nothing is worth thinking about. Don't be fooled. The thoughts will try to fool you. (laughs) First of all, you'll think that the thoughts belong to you. And that's one way they fool you. And another way they'll fool you is I'm important. I'm interesting. If I don't think about it now, I'm never going to come again. This is the last chance. (laughs) They're all ploys. As an absolute, as an absolute mantra, nothing is worth thinking about. Nothing. There are things that can be learned, but the level at which they can be learned, the level of the learning, is a different level than the intuitive understanding that comes from the deepening of practice, from the letting go of thought. And so it's not to say that you have to give up thought forever, right? In our lives, it serves a very useful function, and it will be there, I promise. (laughs) It will definitely be there for you. In terms of coming to a deepening experiential sense of the process, experiential, not discursive, not conceptual, but just... As an example, when you were listening to the music, in order to really hear and understand the music, would it have been helpful to think about it? If you had been thinking about it, you wouldn't have been hearing the music. It's exactly the same way. It's not that after you hear the music and you want to discuss it and compare it, fine, the thoughts, the concepts can be applied. So in that sense, they they serve a function. But at the actual time of listening, the thoughts don't serve any purpose. 
So it's just a reminder. They'll still come. I'm not suggesting that the next sitting you have, there are not going to be any thoughts. But if you can remember that they're not worth thinking about, just let them come and go. No problem. Don't be bothered by them. Try not to get lost in them. Just thoughts come and go, sounds come and go, sensations come and go. Sit back, listen to the music of experience, because that's what it is. It's just it's this ongoing piece of music. Enjoy it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.